Hi, everybody. Juliet here with just a quick note about today's episode. Today, as part of our conversation about the Red Queen Kills Seven Times, you're going to hear Teresa and I talk about bodily autonomy and about women's uh, say in their own health care, specifically mental health care, but health care overall. We record ahead of time, and so we actually recorded this one back in April, a couple of weeks before the Supreme Court leak that uh, shows severe threats to Roe v. Wade uh, came out. So we just wanted to make you aware of that because you might be listening along and wondering, why aren't they talking about this? Well, the reason for that is it hadn't happened yet, but I'm sure we'll be exploring that more on future episodes. And we've also got some links in the show notes. If you're as concerned about this as we are, we've got some places to donate, to get involved and to learn more. So enjoy today's episode. And thanks as always for listening. Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome, everybody, to lucky episode 13 of Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And we're going to talk about horror movies. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) It's what we do. (laughs) Every other week, sometimes on weekends, we are here talking about horror stuff. And bonus stuff, too. I mean, sometimes we talk about TV. It's true. You should check out the bonus stuff. Yeah, bonus stuff is really fun. It's available in the feed now, ongoing. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss all the goodies. Yay! What are we talking about tonight? So today we are talking about the 1972 film, The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, uh, or La Dama Rosa Uricida Sette Volte, which is the Italian title. This was a film that was recommended to us by my partner. So thank you for that. He suggested it right actually when we started the podcast. He said, this should be on your list. And neither one of us had seen it. So this was a first watch for both of us. Which is fun because aside from the brand new movies that we've seen together, this is the first one that we've watched for the podcast that was not like a first run movie that neither of us had seen. That's right. Yeah. Everything that's been a first watch so far was something we like literally saw in the theater as it was coming out. But this is the first time we've chosen something from the uh, vast back catalog of horror for a first time viewing. We have so much. We have so So many many things things that we want to do. But this one... It was available, so that 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 helps. helps. (laughs) It was available, and, you know, it's fun sometimes to go through and watch something that's, like, really old or way throwback, and also Italian horror, so, like, a Giallo film, that is tons of fun to watch because you never know, are you going to get something really crazy? Are you going to get an Argento film? Are you going to get a Fulci film? Or are you going to have something more like this one where it's a little bit more mystery than like insanity? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit first and foremost for listeners who might be less familiar with Jalo films. Let's talk a little bit about what they are. You know what? I don't even know what it means. Okay. I, I looked it up before. Yeah. And I don't remember what it means. Giallo means yellow in 
Italian. And the reason that they use that term is because originally giallo referred to like pulp novels mm-hmm. in Italy, like paperback novels that were about like they were mysteries or they were kind of horror, mystery, thriller, that kind of a thing. So I like to think of the relationship of like the books and the movies in the same way that here in the US we had like the pulp novels that then like led into film noir. Okay. Same kind of relationship there. Cool. Giallo started in the 60s and then grew to popularity in the 70s in Italy. And a lot of people casually refer to it as either spaghetti slashers or spaghetti thrillers. So in the same way that we had Europeans, especially Italians, mostly Italians, though Spain is also well known for following this trend as well, sort of looking at American movies, trying to mimic the style, but ultimately making them their own and creating kind of their own genre because of the sort of hallmarks of storytelling, the style of the directors, the scoring is a big deal, all of that. We saw that in Western with Jalos. We're seeing it with thrillers, mysteries, slashers. Yeah. And you're always going to get an overdub. Oh, yeah. Always. <laughs> always. You can almost peg an Italian film or an Italian director specifically because of the overdub. Yeah, the overdub and the score, for sure. Yes. Classic or very well-known Jalo directors, you would have like your Dario Argento, yep. who is extremely well known, mostly for Suspiria, but also for movies like Demons and uh, his uh, Day of the Dead, which is I forget what it's called. Didn't he have like a different name? Well, Zombie, I guess you could call it yeah, Zombie. Zombies. He helped with the Italian release of Dawn right. of the Dead. Okay, yeah, yeah, Dawn. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his cut is called Zombie, right? Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> Zombie sort of, and then Lucio Fulci also made a movie called Zombie. Oh, okay. Yeah, which okay. is like Zombie slash Zombie 2. The whole the whole Zombie Romero <laughs> thing is like hella confusing because <laughs> it really depends on like what lineage and what country you're talking about. Like the titles change like six times. They're making it easy on us is what they're doing. <laughs> and then Fulci, obviously. Yeah. Mario really- Bava, of yeah, course. Yeah, Mario Bava. Who's sort of the, the pioneer of the of the genre there. Yeah. And each of them have their very own distinct a uh, very specific way of doing things like an Argento film you can almost always like see it as soon as you see some of the lighting choices some of the music he's very representational symbolic in his storytelling also another hallmark of giallo horror is the very very red blood yes very obviously yeah. fake which is partly a storytelling choice and also partly of the time it was the 70s so you yeah, know has technology to do with the cameras they were using yeah but argento's i mean argento's most famous giallo film is profondo rosso yep, so profondo rosso. yep yep <laughs> Uh, also very weird. <laughs> yes, yes, both. <laughs> Argento movies can be very entertaining, but also very challenging for somebody who maybe is not familiar with the, the genre or familiar with his back catalog. Like if you haven't seen any Argento movies before you watch one and you don't know what you're getting into, you might be like, what am I even watching? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could say that with a lot of like more experimental, like Jodorowsky yeah. If you didn't know a Jodorowsky movie before you went in, you might be like, I have no idea what I'm watching. So yeah. I think that Jalo 
if you have only heard of Mario Bava, Dario Argento, and Lucio Fulci, then you're going to be like, whatever it is that we're getting ready to watch, it's going to be nuts. Yeah, definitely. But I would say that this movie is a departure from that trend. Yeah, this is definitely considered one of the more straightforward Jello films. So typically, you have kind of these two streams of Jallo films. There are the ones centered on a male protagonist and one centered on a female protagonist. And like, yeah, like, you know, F the gender binary for sure. But um, from a storytelling perspective, it's it's kind of interesting to look at the way that they framed them because there are departures depending on uh, the gender of the protagonist, like the way the story is told and a lot of the tropes. Mm-hmm. Again, going back to film noir, Almost always in film noir, we see the sort of hard-boiled detective, the femme fatale. So you see all those archetypal roles. Same thing depending on who the protagonist is of your Jalo film. But this one is definitely really straightforward. It's a slasher, but it's also very much a thriller. Mm-hmm. And if you've never seen a type of movie that we're talking about, if you've never watched a Jalo movie, I would definitely recommend this one as kind of like your entry point because it will catch you up to speed on the weird overdubbing. Um, <laughs> it'll get you familiar with a lot of the like shot architecture that they use a lot, the filmography, sort of the color choices, because there's always like very bright contrasting colors in these movies sometimes to the point of pain, like between lighting and costuming and set decoration and everything. Like sometimes it gets to the point where you're like, my eyeballs are going to fall out of my head. It's so bright, so contrasty. But this one is kind of a, it's like your first step. Like this is the baby (laughs) jello. This really is a good starter because although it is, you know, kind of a visual delight to the point where it can be a little overwhelming in terms of Jalo films. The story is as straightforward as you're going to get with like a kind of a windy thriller whodunit. And it doesn't lean into the symbolism to the point where it's obtuse. You know, mm-hmm. that is kind of to your previous point, like the problem that some people have, especially with Argento films is depending on what sort of story stream you're talking about with Argento, it can get really high art, really symbolic, which is great if that's what you're in for. But if you want an introduction to especially European horror of the 70s, like this is a really good place to start because it is pretty straightforward. And the story is really engaging. Yeah. I mean, we were guessing the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> we're both like, wait, is it this person? Is it that person? <laughs> Um, yeah i mean it kind of goes to our our previous episode scream where mm -hmm. like i love that like Mm -hmm. i love that experience of a movie and i'm kind of excited like i want to watch this one again now it's on shutter so i might just like you know stream it in the next couple of weeks and sort of see the clues that they laid out like now that i know the whole story what were the clues they left for me along the way that i didn't pick up on the first time yeah so what is the summary. What's the overarching story of this one? Okay, well, on a very, very, very basic level, the story is about a family who has this castle, and the grandfather dies, the patriarch dies of a heart attack, and two of the sisters and their husband slash lover adjacent to them are set to sort of inherit the castle and the family fortune. 
And of course, there's always a catch um, with all good movies. Uh, I, I was thinking a lot of like the cat and the canary in that regard. And the catch is that they have to wait a year to find out who inherits what and why. So that's the sort of backdrop of our story. The other thing that provides the context to our story is we get a flashback to start the film, which is two of the sisters, one of whom is the inher- is one of the inheritors, and we'll find out why in a minute, have this kind of contentious relationship. They're fighting as sisters do, but there's this legend uh, about the Red Queen in who lived in this castle where the family lives. And as the story goes, there were two sisters. They were the Red Queen and the Black Queen. And the Black Queen was always sort of tormenting the Red Queen until one day the Red Queen couldn't take it anymore. And the Red Queen kills seven people, the last one being her sister. Well, I guess the Black Queen kills the Red Queen. The Red Queen comes back, kills seven people, the last of which the seventh is the Black Queen herself. And the grandfather tells the little girls this legend and he says it repeats every hundred years. And then he kind of says like, oh, but don't worry. The next hundred years is in 14 years. It'll be in 1972. We won't have to worry about it. No big deal, right? <laughs> you're like, are, are you sure, dude? Because it's in like 14 years when these these uh, women are going to be grown up. I think that's going to be a problem. <laughs> yeah. It's great that he's just like, oh, don't worry about it. It's That's a garbage story. Yeah, it's but, a garbage story. Take down this very, very, very expensive painting and just trash it, please. Yeah, but it's this gigantic painting because so there's Kitty, who's the blonde little sister in this like prequel, you know, setting the scene story. And then Eveline, who's the dark haired sister. And they're, Eveline is like stabbing, violently <laughs> stabbing this doll. And then the grandpa's like, oh, to settle you guys down, I will tell you this very violent story about somebody who used to live in this castle. But don't worry, this painting that's hung, hung here for hundreds of years about these two sisters, it's all garbage. Yeah, Just throw this, it away. This story about these sisters killing each other is totally appropriate for nine-year-olds. It's <laughs> fine yes exactly because they're, they're literally nine years old yeah. and they just got into a fight and one of them kind of clearly very disturbed uh yeah. stabbing took takes a knife and is stabbing and <laughs> takes the head off of this doll and is like cackling about it and he's like okay i'm gonna tell you guys a story and then they're just fine after that but then they have this little like cutscene of <laughs> Evelyn just tormenting Kitty, just like smashing her in the head with a swing. Oh my gosh. It's it's very uh you could tell that she was very traumatized by all of this. Yeah, yeah. And like I don't have siblings and I know siblings fight, but I'm like I'm like, is this normal? This this doesn't seem right to me. It seems more normal for boys. Like if you have okay. brothers. Okay. Um they like, you know, wrestle and you know, fight and all that. But I mean, I did a little bit with my brother, but I'm also seven years older. So there's much bigger. I was more like, I'm asserting the fact that I'm a bully. And then when my brother turned like 11, he grew a foot and a half in a year. So then I was no longer (laughs) the bigger of the two of us. (laughs) So yeah, no, I no, I wasn't. He wasn't like 11. He was younger than that. But it was a little overboard. Yeah. For yeah. even for siblings, yeah, it seemed it seemed like not okay. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that you talked about when we first started watching the movie, when the opening credits were rolling, is kind of the music. 
Yeah. Um, I wanted to hear what you had to say about the musical, the musical choices in Jalo movies in general, and also the one specifically for this one. Yeah, so in general, um, Jello movies and moreover Italian cinema from the 60s and 70s is really known for its distinctive music. It's very, very different than American score music of the same era. And it's gorgeous. You know, we to go back to Spaghetti Westerns, of course, we all know the name Ennio Morricone, mm-hmm. who composed for Italian and American films and has become known as like one of the greatest modern composers. But the horror films really had a lot of really distinctive composers. Um, we think about people like Fabio Frizzi. We think about Goblin in Dawn of the Dead, which was a, an Italian band, a group of composers, most of whom I think compose individually as well. I know Maurizio Guarini does. This film score was by Bruno Nicolai, and it has that distinctive Italian 70s sound to it. Very orchestrated on the one hand, very eerie on the other. You know it when you hear it. It's a really great sound. And to me, it puts you right in that era of -hmm. film and kind of in the mindset of that style of film as well. Yeah. They use a lot of Moog sounds and like electric organ and things like that. A lot of early synthesizer work was done in film scores in general, but especially the European film scores of that era. Very melodic, Mm -hmm. a commanding type sound, not like elevator music. When I think about 70s, if I'm not thinking like jazz, I always think like elevator music. Yeah, yeah. But not like that, like much more commanding, more uh, almost sometimes... Uh, like inappropriately bright yeah it can be kind of scary sounding but it also can be like inappropriately bright in that you're like is this a horror movie or is this about to be a comedy exactly yeah and modern directors have played on that as well i mean i just looked up bruno nicolai and completely forgot like he did a lot of franco's films and they actually used some of his work uh tarantino used some of his work in some of his modern stuff tarantino of course loves to throw back to classic cinema of all eras but especially in the kill bill um pair or whatever in the kill bill <laughs> movies he used a lot of um a lot of italian stuff there was some morricone in there and he also used some work from bruno nicolai so if you don't know that sound but you know kill bill think about some of the sounds that really made that movie sound special and that's what we're talking about with italian scores yeah um, also, The Hateful Eight, Ennio Morricone. Actually, yes. he did the entire score. So if you've seen The Hateful Eight, that is all spaghetti Western sounds. Mm-hmm. Or The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars mm-hmm. more. Those movies, like, that's exactly the sound that we're talking about. Yeah, Man with the Harmonica. Yeah, exactly. But they're so iconic. Like, you absolutely will know as soon as you hear, you watch a movie like this, and then you hear the soundtrack, you're like, I will never forget it. I'll yeah. never be able to get that out of my head, which is why the, uh, which we're not doing Suspiria today, but it was interesting, the musical choices that they made for the remake of Suspiria. Yeah. Or reboot or whatever you want to call it. We can get into that someday because <laughs> I have, yeah. Is it a remake? Is it a reboot? Is it something entirely different? Yeah. Another thing about Jalo movies is that this is not like a, an absolute, but a lot of Jalo movies don't have a satisfying ending or will have storylines that go nowhere. Yeah. Or are simply there for effect or 
they'll like draw in elements of like symbolism and you're like, what does it mean? And it means nothing. It doesn't go right, anywhere. Right. This is not one of those movies. No, no. Yeah. Like we said, this one's pretty nicely straightforward in that everything, everything ultimately does contribute mm-hmm. to the overall story in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Even if you don't think it does, eventually it will. So one of the really cool things about this movie is the setting. Yeah. So we have the Wildenbrook Castle. It's like the main singular setting. They keep going back to a couple of other places, but you have this Wildenbrook Castle, which is supposed to be an Italian castle, but it's obviously German because the name is Wildenbrook. Like, <laughs> it's pretty yeah, obviously German. That That is one thing about this movie is, so it's... It reminds me of opera in that way. It's in Italian. The characters, for the most part, have Italian names. Some, although there is a Mueller in there as well, which is a total German name. (laughs) But it's definitely set in, or it takes place in Germany. Like, super obviously, because you see German on a lot of the street signs and things like that. Yeah. So I don't know what's up with that. I think that was just a product of where they shot it, I guess. They're like, look, we can only make this movie in Germany. Yeah. And all the cars are German. The name of the company that Kitty works for is German. Yeah. It's very weird, but I mean, do what you gotta. But uh, we have this like really cool setting of this old castle. And we're talking like so old and so big that they have an entire like cellar slash basement area. Slash dungeon. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Slash they used to actually have people in jail down there. So this must have been like the main castle in some sort of like fiefdom. Yeah, I would assume so. Where they actually maybe were like protecting a certain area and then they had to have people in prison. And this place is huge. I'm talking like so big that this basement slash dungeon area, people don't even go down there and there are parts of it that nobody goes to confidently without really having to like lock anything or do any tricks or anything like that. Nobody would find something hidden there. Well, and it's got its own, like, water system. It's got a lake slash pond slash moat kind of a situation happening there. So, yeah, this is not like, oh, it's a McMansion that looks a little bit like a castle. No, this is a legit castle. Yeah. Like, gigantic. Probably very cold. There are parts of this castle that... In later in the movie, they go into and stuff's like falling from the ceiling because nobody's been there for so long. Right. Yeah. It seems really obvious that this is one of those situations where because it's only a singular family and the people that serve them living there now that they only inhabit a very small footprint of this very large place. Yeah. So as we go through the story, we have Kitty, Francisca, Kitty's lover... Uh, Martin, who's still married. Yeah. And then you have Herbert, who is Francisca's husband. You find out very early on in the movie that Kitty has accidentally killed her sister, uh, Eveline. And the, she like smashed her head against a, it was accidental. They were like fighting and she accidentally hit, like pushed her, she hit her head and then she drowned in this like moat area. And then they hid the body. And so they have to keep it now that their grandfather has died, though he died ostensibly from the uh, shock of seeing the Red Queen coming through his bedchamber. 
the two sisters now who have covered up Eveline's death have to keep it secret that she's dead. And they do so by way of saying, oh, she's in America. We can't get a hold of her. Uh, We don't know what's happening to her. But then you have this very robust cast of characters that kind of make themselves known. And one of the really cool things about this is everybody has a motive. So you have these people dying. So you have the grandpa, obviously, who had a heart attack from seeing the Red Queen. But then you have Hans, who is... Who is Hans? I can't even remember Hans now. Hans is the managing director of uh, Springa, right. the okay. company that Kitty and Martin work for. Right. He is sleeping with basically all of the women on his staff, except for Kitty. He is also in sort of a contentious professional relationship with Martin, where they disagree on a lot of things. Martin seems to disagree with the way that Hans is running the company. So you kind of introduced to this workplace where there's a lot of tension. So that kind of sets up our first victim, which is like, is Hans truly a victim of the Red Queen? Or is Hans a victim because someone wants his place in the company or someone wants someone else to have his place in the company? That kind of a thing. Yeah. And you have Lulu, who is Hans's lover, But Lulu makes it very plain that she would have sex with whomever she needs to in order to keep her place inside of this company as like sort of the head model, but also lots of influence, like very influential in day-to-day operations. And then you have Rosemary, who was Hans's secretary. And then she quit his, she quit being his secretary, but I'm assuming she had some other role there because she was always there. And you have Martin who now is managing director, Kitty as his lover slash also the photographer of the entire company. And Lenora, the designer. Yeah, she's like an assistant slash designer. You have Peter, who it seems was in a relationship with Eveline, and he wants to know where she is. And Kitty's just like, she's in America. I can't tell you anymore. And he's doesn't want to take that as an answer, and also is blackmailing her. So there's this very complex web of all of these characters that all have motive for killing one another from like two or three steps away. So you could say like, Peter has reason to kill Hans by way of Eveline, who knew Lenore and who knew, like, knows Lulu, and then Rosemary's thrown in there. It's so complex. There's lots of, um, lots of interpersonal relationships that you have to kind of, like, keep straight. And I, that's why I keep forgetting everybody's name, is because they're major parts of the story, but they only get, like, a little bit of screen time to kind of, like, have their linchpin in the movie. So it's, like, Oh my god, I can only remember like three names at a time. Well, and everyone is more intertwined than we are initially led to believe. You know, you start off thinking like, okay, so there's like the family, and then there's the group of colleagues, and then, you know, there's kind of Peter off by himself, and then you start to connect the dots and realize that this is actually a very complicated web of people, and their connections to each other are very messy and very tangled and deeper than they are on the surface, Mm -hmm. which contributes to the mystery of it all. Yeah, and 
first you're like, why are these people at her workplace dying? Because you're thinking that this is just going to revolve around this family. But then why would her workplace have anything to do with her family? And you do find out why. Um, But the other interesting thing is that you you think that the killer is obvious. There are very several scenes, pretty much any time anybody is killed in this movie, you have what you think is the quote unquote, the red queen, a person with long flowing black hair, a cool flapping red cloak behind her or behind them, because you never know. You never right. know if it's a, a man uh, dressed up, you know, to be to appear as the red queen or if it's a woman. But you have what looks to be an obvious thing. And then so you're kind of questioning, is it the Red Queen? Is Eveline back as the Red Queen? Has she actually been resurrected? And now her ghostly form has come to exact revenge on her sister and the family? Or is it somebody dressed up as her? Or did Eveline never actually die? What is happening? Does Eveline have like an evil twin? I went straight soap opera with this for a <laughs> minute where I was like, oh, what if? <laughs> yeah, it would be easy to have an evil twin. Oh, it yeah. would be very, that, that would make perfect sense because the very few times you see the Red Queen, it looks From what you can tell, it looks to be Eveline. From the very brief moments that you get to see her in the flashbacks, it does look like her. Then you think, surely that can't be the case because there's a scene where Francisca and Kitty go down to the weird, creepy basement and the jail part of it and open the door and there's a very dead person in there. Yeah. And uh, so then you're like, okay, well, can't be Eveline. Cause, yeah, she's uh, super dead. She's very dead and very rotten in this, yeah. in this jail. So can't be that. Then you're kind of like, okay, well, it must be supernatural then because it clearly looks like her. And then you find out there's so many other things it could be. Yeah. There's so many people in this, though, that have the build that could be, mm-hmm. you know, dressed Ah, and it's, everybody's it's got motive, yeah. which is great. Yeah. Everybody has motive or they have something on somebody else who has motive. So very complex. Um, but one of the more granular things I wanted to mention is the use of red and black in this movie. Yeah. Very common Jalo theme is to have black and red as like contrasting both like thematic elements and also as color choices in within a movie. And in this one, I think that it's no different in that respect. Obviously, you have the red and black queen as thematic elements, but you also have um, very deliberate choices in the red cloak of the red queen. And later in the movie, um, Kitty is wearing a red costume and things like that. So what did you think about the color choices there with red and black? I really liked what they did. Honestly, that's one of those things that I want to go back and watch for again, because I suspect there were actually more clues with the colors than I picked up the first time. Mm -hmm. You know, there were a couple of times with cars and things like that. And then we definitely noticed like toward the end, like, oh, Kitty's wearing red and black. Mm -hmm. Like, that's interesting. But I have a feeling there was more that I didn't initially pick up on because I was too in like the, wait, this person's got motive. This person's got motive. I think there's definitely more there to kind of mine. I mean, like the doll at the beginning is wearing a red dress and the necklace is black. Mm -hmm. So there are clues along the way there. 
One of the other awesome settings in this is the business that Kitty works for, which is called Springa. Mm -hmm. And it is a fashion, like, marketing ad agency. So everybody in this movie is very well-dressed. Oh, yeah. And, like, all of their apartments are really cool. The castle's obviously cool, but in a different way. Martin's apartment, like, what is even happening? weird modern art (laughs) happening there. Yeah, it's like Martin's apartment is it's shaped really weird and then it has like green and blue and white stripes like horizontal stripes but not just like on the walls it also is on the curtains it's on his floating fireplace it goes all the way around his entire apartment it's very odd i feel like the only thing his apartment was missing was a conversation pit (laughs) maybe we just didn't see that part that's true that part of his apartment possible it's there yeah, it's so over the top. It's so 70s. Yeah, like it's in just... the best possible way. And I mean, that is yet another hallmark of Jalo films is they often will play with things like fashion or setting or things like that and really give you that sort of beautiful cosmopolitan European experience yeah um, and use that often as a plot device too (laughs) there's even a photo shoot that they're doing at one point where they have scooters yeah and I'm like what is more quintessentially 70s Italy than scooters yeah a scooter photo shoot uh, mini coopers too (laughs) yeah (laughs) Mini Coopers, everybody's driving Volkswagen Beetles too, which although those aren't made in Italy, they were everywhere in the 70s. Yeah, nice to see the VW bus in its natural habitat. It's not just for hippies, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's also for people who are using it as a work van because it's the inside is nice and boxy and also a murder scene. So yeah, (laughs) (laughs) you'll see that in Jolly movies, especially that coloring like the theme of color is so strong in those movies it's almost like a hallmark of those movies is to have like okay we have the people in this color specifically throughout the movie and the contrasting red and black so i'm glad that this movie although in terms of using colored lights less so right um yeah that's more of an Argento thing. You see that a lot in Argento movies. It's like green and purple light used simultaneously. And you're like, my eyeballs are... High dr- saturation. Yes. Yeah. Though this movie is very highly saturated. Mm-hmm. It's just not lit in that same way. Yeah. I was really pleased with that to see red and black as contrasting things because deep red is... That's all over the place in deep red. Yeah. So one of the things I noticed in this and... Something that you don't see in movies from the 70s often was the very frank discussion that they had with the sex worker that the I was going to ask you what you thought of that. Yeah. 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 You go first. Well, I thought that, number one, you know, yes, films of the 70s in general do tend to trend more sexually liberated. I wouldn't go as far to say sex positive um, because we didn't quite have an understanding of that in the 70s, but definitely more liberated. But I thought this film in particular did some things that you don't always see in films from the 70s, especially films that would have been shown in a grindhouse. This is this is not exactly a grindhouse film, although Jallos were sometimes shown in grindhouse uh, cinemas 
the fact that the sex workers were not demeaned, they weren't abused by the police in the questioning. It was just kind of like, yeah, what did you see? You're a witness. That's it. And the sex workers were not, they, they didn't have much screen time, but they were also not portrayed. And part of this could be that it's a European film and not an American film. They were not portrayed like super stereotypically in the way that we would think in an American film, mm-hmm. a sex worker would be portrayed, especially in the 70s. They were just kind of these women wearing equally trendy fashions as all of our main characters. And the setup for that too, I thought was also very interesting that uh lulu was talking about yeah hans and i wanted to you know try something new so we went and found a sex worker and we were gonna have three-way yeah like and it wasn't like ooh, that's it was just kind of like yeah that's that's what we were doing on a whatever night it was yeah saturday night I thought it was extremely interesting that the inspector wasn't like, oh, you and Hans have weird sex. Right. That's crazy. It was really just, okay, well, Hans had adventurous taste. And so that's... And Lulu is also very frank about the fact that she is sleeping with Hans, although she does not seem to be in love with him. Yeah. It's more of a relationship, like, she's going to sleep with whomever like i said earlier she's going to sleep with whomever it takes for her to stay in her position within the company she's very upfront about that with other women like i'll sleep with whomever i don't care she offers to martin she's like did you come up here to see me naked because when you become the new managing director i'll sleep with you too she's very frank about her sexuality in that way and it doesn't seem although martin does call her some perjurative terms like you know, he calls her a whore. It's more of a, like, out of meanness and less out of, like, a judgmental way. At least I thought so. He wasn't really judging her. He was more like, I don't like you. I don't yeah, want to be was, with you. It was definitely more like, uh, you know, do whatever with your time, but I don't like you as a person. Yeah. Although he definitely um, does 180 on that later in oh, the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But in the fastest disrobing I have ever seen, because she had layers on. <laughs> and so, boots. And boots, too. Yeah, yeah. So for some context, Lulu shows up at Martin's apartment, and they're having this conversation. And she's basically kind of laying it all out for him. Like, look, you're the managing director now. I sleep with the managing director because it gives me power. Period. So I'm here here we go. And so Martin's having this sort of like, I don't know, you know, this kind of battle with himself. And Lulu is sort of using his relationship with Kitty to manipulate him. And I swear to God, Martin walks across the room and the camera focuses on him. And he says like two sentences and we cut back to Lulu and she is already completely naked on this couch. I'm like, how? Like, <laughs> did you have tearaway clothing? How is that possible? She had to have. Maybe I mean, maybe she's got a tearaway outfit for occasions such as just this. Just for these occasions, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's refreshing to see, although not an American film, which, I mean, it's the 70s in America. So, yeah, like, there's free love, but there always seems to be consequences in cinema in the 70s yeah. in America. So in this one, we don't see that sort of mean take or, like, revenge or, like, people get a comeuppance because of their sexual prowess or sexual, you know, desires. That's not like that in this movie. Those are almost, like, throwaway things. Like, well, this is situational because the plot calls for it. But other than that, that's it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I also liked that it took place in the context of fashion and we had a woman photographer, number one, and the shoots with the models were not overly sexualized. Like, yeah, they were sexy, like it was fashion, but it was not through a predatory gaze Mm -hmm. at all. And yes, Lulu is a model, but she wields the power in her relationship with the men. You don't see the sort of stereotypical like, Oh, the male executives and photographers are preying on the innocent models. No, it's quite the opposite. Lulu understands that she wields the power in these relationships with these men. And the other women involved are all in some kind of like leadership or creative role rather than being like, oh, the poor models. Like the women are not relegated to only being objects of the male gaze like the women are also controlling the creative narrative in this company which is really nice to see for a film of that era yeah typically you would not see a female photographer no um, especially not in a 70s ad agency or a marketing agency that would not be the case so for kitty to be the one wielding the camera and for the assistants to be men it's like totally a role reversal and also you get to see some of those photo shoots and like some of the final product and things like that. And those are really cool. Those yeah, are very it's a fun touch. Yeah. It's uh it's lots of fun. And it makes the movie very elevated in that way where there's a reason for everybody to dress very fashionably and in a modern way for the seventies, very fashion forward. Not in a tacky way either. Not where right. not right. where it's overdone. I did want to mention that the costumes in this are very, very cool. Especially so Pretty much everybody except for Francisca and Herbert. They're the only ones that are dressed very strangely. What did you think when you first saw Francisca's sleeping attire when the grandfather died? I don't understand how that outfit worked. Like, I need to go back and, like, understand, like, how the fabric was connected to itself. Like... That was a very confusing outfit to me. Yeah. But the pairing that I loved the most was their dinner attire when Kitty comes to see them at the castle. It was giving me straight up, like, X-Men Hellfire Club vibes. (laughs) Like, straight up. I'm like, oh, Herbert's dressed like Sebastian Shaw. He's cosplaying. This is great. (laughs) like full like dinner jacket and ascot and then francisca's wearing this like black gown with a black choker where it's like evening gown you know masquerading as bondage wear a little bit it was great was she wearing long gloves too i can't remember possibly but it would not have been out of place no it it, (laughs) that's why i don't remember is because even if they, she wasn't actually wearing black gloves, in my imagination, she is. <laughs> and Herbert always wears an ascot. Always. And nobody else is wearing an ascot. Yeah. He's the it's only look. one. He's like, like, I live in a castle. Thing. Yeah, he's like, look, this is, this is my thing. I'm the guy with the ascot. I live in a castle. I don't have a job. I'm going to wear an ascot every day of my life. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> And Francesca's just going to wear crazy, just, it's like she raided, like, a closet from the 20s of only ball gowns, and that's all she's going to wear. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, if I lived in a castle, I would probably do the same thing. Yeah, this is like a castle so ritzy, they have multiple servants. Yeah. And the servants serve them food, which, it's one thing to have, like, a caretaker in a house, but you have to be a whole extra level of fancy and ritzy to have 
somebody like put a dish in front of you to eat. Although it could have been a formal dinner since they had Kitty there. But something makes me think. They were certainly dressed for it. What do they do for jobs? I don't think they do anything. They don't because they mentioned early on in the film when they were talking about the inheritance, Francisco was kind of giving Kitty a little bit of grief about the fact that Kitty wanted to keep working. That's right. That's right. She's like, I'm not giving up my job. And I'm like, I wouldn't either. Like, flouncing around a castle is not... (laughs) Sounds kind of boring. I think that it would get very boring. Yeah. Especially if you're not having to do work to it. Yeah. Like, if there are caretakers. There are only so many times you can reenact meatloaf music videos in a castle before that gets really old. Or you burn through all your candles. Yeah. Because you don't have any more candles for your candelabras anymore. (laughs) Oh, man. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, although that music video is like eight or nine minutes long, there's only so many times you could do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could always move on to the Celine Dion song video that mimicked that one. Or um, Bonnie Tyler. You could also go, <laughs> you could go total eclipse of the heart and do that. My but unironic favorite song. <laughs> oh, man. Song so much. <laughs> it's great. It's so great. So Knowing what the music video is like oh, for that song. It just, makes it a thousand times better. <laughs> it's so weird. It's just such a strange one. Weird uh, zombie boys and castles and like. Yeah. Yeah. It, you're like, how does this have anything to do with this song? But you just go with it. It's, I mean, yeah. You can't not. Bonnie Tyler, just her feathered platinum blonde hair just glowing because of the backlight. <laughs> I don't know why we just, like, now I can't not see that happening inside that castle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so this is not directly related, but one of the plot points is that Martin's wife, Elizabeth, is in Uh a psychiatric hospital. Yeah. And she's been there for a while. Kitty has gotten with Martin. You hear Lulu talk about Martin's crazy wife, and you just think, okay, she's like crazy, you know, quote unquote crazy, not actually needing to be in a psychiatric hospital. Well, then you find out that she is in a psychiatric hospital. Yeah. And she's getting better. Martin knows that she's getting better and ostensibly she's going to be released from this. And then Martin's going to have a problem on his hands because he has a long-term girlfriend. It seems like pretty well established that they're, you know, seeing one another. But he also has this wife and it's like, okay, well, what am I going to do with her? It also seems like she's rich. Like she's going to have an inheritance. Yes. Yeah. Um, I definitely. Yeah. Okay, so another theme of movies in the 70s when it has to do with a woman who is in need of psychiatric help or is currently in a psychiatric hospital, the only two people who have agency over Elizabeth's care are her doctor, who is a man, and her husband, also a man. Yep. (laughs) I was going to throw that your way because... The Rosemary's Baby came out several years before this, kind of dealing with the same themes of women with men are the only people who have agency over their, you know, well-being and their ongoing mental health care. Yeah, I mean, and this certainly goes back societally much, much further. Um, And really, we were just starting to see movies, especially in the horror genre, because as always, horror can explore things 
in ways that other genres can't, you know, horror can actually have some veiled yet straightforward conversations and explore things that, that just other, other genres can't do as easily or can't break ground on, let's say. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen this throughout history, certainly especially as a product of the 19th century, of sort of, you know, the Victorian era um, in England and then spreading outward, the sort of trope of the hysterical woman and the fact that, you know, throughout history, we have seen women being institutionalized because their behavior was unacceptable in some way, shape, or form to their husbands. And the fact that legally, uh, I know in the United States, legally, up until, I don't know the exact year, but it was sometime in the 70s, a husband could basically have his wife institutionalized for like pretty much anything and could dictate her care entirely. And that care could not, for example, be placed in the hand of another family member, a parent, a sister, etc. It was always in the husband's hands exclusively. And the doctors, of course, were mostly men, Mm -hmm. not exclusively, but mostly still men. Yeah. uh, Not great, let me tell you. Yeah. And Elizabeth, although... The doctor says that she's suffering from, like, delusions or she's, like, hallucinating. She mentions to her husband, Martin, that she's seeing – that she knows that Martin is seeing somebody else because uh-huh. Eveline told her. And Martin immediately is like, well, Eve- because Kitty has already revealed to him that Eveline is dead, I think, at this point. Or uh, I don't think that she has revealed that she's dead yet, but – Martin does know that Evelyn is supposed to be in America and yeah. unreachable. So he thinks, there's no way my wife is talking to Evelyn. So this is just another example of how she's crazy. And then the doc- he tells the doctor, make sure she's under extra watch, higher level of security. Although after Elizabeth dies, the doctor's like, oh, there's no evidence of malpractice on our side. I'm like, okay, well, he told you to put her under extra watch, though. And then she ended up getting out anyways. But I digress. Yeah. I found it really interesting, too, that in the scene we get with Elizabeth talking to Martin, number one, her one very lucid moment, she says, all men are filthy beasts. (laughs) And did you notice the nurse watching them? Yeah. It was basically not doing anything. Yeah. Except that she kept perking up. And I just found it interesting that... The woman nurse was observing kind of what was really happening. Yeah. You know, observing what Martin was really saying, Elizabeth having these moments of lucidity and Mm -hmm. kind of being more aware than any of us realized at that time. And the doctor is just completely just following Martin's lead on everything. Yeah, that was disappointing. I mean, it had to be like that for the script, but also... Just because a movie is of a certain time doesn't mean that we can't be disappointed in the representation of how women are being treated, you know, during that time. Absolutely. Although this movie is very forward thinking in other ways, it is still disappointing to see a woman without agency over her own mental health care because we have no idea what put her into a a psychiatric hospital. We have no, like, although the doctor is saying that she has hallucinations, who knows what that could be. Yeah. Yeah. What what does that actually mean? Yeah, because 
from what we can tell in this movie, it's Martin living the bougie life in this insanely decorated apartment with two different matching cars in different right. colors. Right, yeah. One orange and one red, both convertibles with like rag tops. So, you know, ostensibly he's got a ton of money. He's always very well dressed. He's the managing director of a very successful fashion business or fashion uh, marketing agency. And his wife is in a psychiatric hospital. So it's also just, you know, and again, like this movie was made when it was made and whatever. But it's also just like that was such a trope for a while in literature and in film where it's like you have the man who is set up as sort of the hero, which Martin definitely is. And you know, there came a point in literature and film where we had to make our male heroes more complicated. So rather than being, you know, making the stereotypical family man the hero, then we took like the man who was seemingly, and I'm putting a lot on this character, but just follow me on this because I'm talking about a trope. The man who was seemingly a good husband. And oh, isn't it tragic that his wife succumb to some mental illness and has to be in you know some kind of psychiatric facility and look he found love again with this pretty young like barf you know (laughs) but that was totally like that honestly does continue to be a trope in certain respects that we've gotten away from that um by and large like that was a whole thing for a while like oh like The man who's, like, cheating, but it's justified because his wife is, like, air quotes, crazy. Mm -hmm. And isn't that sad that this husband, like, this good guy, like, has this crazy wife and she's away. And so, of course, he has to, like, go pick up on the young woman he works with. And (laughs) this is something that they kind of gloss over. Yeah, Martin is the quote-unquote good guy, but then he very easily sleeps with Lulu. Oh, like... (laughs) With almost no, like, hesitance. Yeah. Just like, well... Even though he's crappy to her in the workplace, then she comes over and gets naked, and he's like, well, I'm already pretty much naked anyways. Yeah. Like, you did just rip all your clothes off in two seconds. I guess we should just, you know... Go ahead and do this. Yeah. Also, don't know how much he was going to resist against this, considering he let her in while he was wearing nothing but a robe. Not a very and, short robe at that. Yeah. This was like Austin Powers short. Yeah, was. I was like, this is where Austin Powers got this terribly yeah. short robe. And another thing I wanted to bring up and ask what you thought about is Peter's sexual assault and rape of Kitty. I hated it. Hated it. It, it almost is like it didn't even happen yeah. in this movie. Because Peter is blackmailing Kitty because he knows that something's happened to Eveline, but he doesn't know what. So to keep it from the police and the press and etc., he is extorting money from Kitty. And there is a time when he comes in to get more money from her, and then he forces himself on her. It's not a necessarily a graphic scene, as several other movies in the 70s, like uh, Last House on the Left yeah. in particular. It's not as graphic of a scene, but we do end the scene with Kitty kind of like crouched, uh, not not crouched, but like her knees under her chin on the floor. She's bloody. There's signs of a struggle and she's completely naked. So it's pretty obvious what happened, but 
there's never another instance when we touch back on that scene. Right. Yeah. There's just, it's like, okay, well, Peter raped her and then he leaves. It does not seem like, although he has assaulted her in the past in terms of like physically assaulting her, it doesn't seem that that is, it's almost like a throwaway action on his Mm -hmm. part. It doesn't seem that he's interested in that otherwise, like in prior interactions that he's had with Kitty and in interactions that he has with other women in the film. He never talks about that. He doesn't seem to be a slime ball. He's just like, this is almost a throwaway scene for him. It completely changes the trajectory of his character within the movie, but then we never talk about it or see it ever again in the rest of it. And they almost try to explain it away later in an interaction he has with Rosemary that doesn't make sense until the very, very end of the movie mm-hmm. where she's berating him. He, She buys drugs from him and you're kind of trying to figure out what that's about. You don't understand that till the very end of the movie. And she berates him and she's like, you know, you're a drug addict. You're worthless. You're this, you're that. And so I don't know if we're meant to believe that his assault of Kitty was in some kind of, like, drug-addled mania or something. Mm -hmm. But either way, it feels like to me that that was very much placed in the movie because, like, that's what you did in the 70s, Mm -hmm. you know? Because, like, the 70s was definitely an era where we were seeing a lot of rape and sexual assault portrayed on film, (sighs) ostensibly, like, you know, trying trying to flip it in a way that is very flawed when you consider that most of this was happening through the lens of male filmmakers, Mm -hmm. you know, to try to show like, oh, well, these women are overcoming this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like they, at at the price of great violence, they're overcoming and we get, you know, this sort of rape revenge subgenre and all of that. But it really like this to me just felt so like, well, it's a, you know, it's a slasher film in the 70s. You've got to have a rape scene. That bugs me because, like, that doesn't need to be in there, number one. And for a film that is pretty accessible for the era in which it was made, like, that's the one thing that kind of bums me out. Like, it would be the thing that would make me hesitate, like, you know, across the board recommending this. Like, oh, like... This is a great, and it is a great movie, but like, you know, I'm always very cognizant when I'm recommending a film that does have a rape scene. Like, I want to be just like extra careful about that recommendation. And that's the one thing that would give me pause from like recommending this across the board, like to somebody who is either getting into horror or getting into European horror or whatever. So that's a bummer. I know it's not unique to this film at all, given the era in which it was made, but it was just like, it felt really unnecessary. Yeah, we never talk about it after that. There's never a moment where Kitty brings it back up. We don't see any sort of, like, ramifications. It just feels very weird. Not that a robbery or extortion isn't violent in and of itself. Right, right. But that could have been the extent of it, and the rest of the movie still would have made 100% sense, and even more so in some cases. So, yeah, that was a disappointing scene, Especially because Peter, while there is retribution on his part, it is not specifically because of his rape of Kitty. And Kitty does not get a chance to talk about it. She doesn't bring it up to Martin. She doesn't bring it up to her sister. 
She doesn't bring it up to anybody she works with. So it's just very, like, kind of feels tacked on. Um, It was disappointing in that way. So we have this very complex net of characters, all with something on the other. In some cases, many things on several different people. But we get through six deaths. We have Hans, who is stabbed by the Red Queen. And also the Red Queen, we should mention, not only does she wear a cool red cloak, she also cackles as she runs away. Hashtag goals. (laughs) So we have Hans, who gets stabbed. We have Lenore, who also gets stabbed. Lenore is the assistant. She... The Red Queen steals the van and drives her far away and then stabs Lenore in the back of the van. And then they find it somehow really fast. I don't know how. Yeah, I don't know how. I, I was like, were, well, how do they know it's there? They were chasing it or something? Oh, maybe. That could be. Yeah. Elizabeth, Martin's wife, who's killed, she's climbing over the fence and then the Red Queen cuts the rope ladder, which, why would you have a rope ladder over the fence? I don't know if the Red Queen put it there. Who knows? It's in the script. So. <laughs> but she falls and like pierces her jaw on the top of the fence. She doesn't die immediately. She dies after she says, Eveline. Yes. And then everybody's like, oh, how would she know? I don't understand. Why would she say that right before she dies? Then we have Peter, who it was actually very cool, his death. He gets dragged in the car to death. Yeah. Which was pretty cool. Yeah. The Red Queen, once again, driving. Yes. Um, the ghost driving. I like a uh, slasher villain that drives. <laughs> yeah, she uh, she drives the car. Uh, Peter's got his coat, which is funny that he's wearing a trench coat because he never wears a trench coat no. in the rest of the movie. It's like the only time he wears a trench coat. It's in service of this whole, like, mm-hmm. getting it shut in the door thing because he wears a very iconic like leather jacket yeah the rest of the movie but this one time he's wearing this trench coat yeah and then he gets dragged to death and smashed into a curb so that's cool we have lulu the main model and it seems as though the person who's going to figure out what's happened and she gets shot and dies she's dead on the floor and then we have rosemary who is number six so she's the I guess the last of the Red Queen's victims. Yeah, technically. Although, I guess you can't say technically she's the Red Queen's victim because some of them are her victims and some of them are... Yeah. So the whole movie kind of boils down to an inheritance Mm -hmm. issue, an issue of inheritance, because one of these daughters is going to inherit most of... and. I guess Kitty is, like, the favorite daughter. So she's going to inherit half of it, and then Francesca is going to inherit part of it, and then Eveline is going to inherit the other half. So it's going to be, like, a 50-25-25 thing. Because Kitty's the favorite granddaughter, which seems kind of uneven, but, I mean, he's not my grandpa. I don't know. (laughs) And Francesca was the one who took care of him. So you would think Mm -hmm. she'd be getting more. And of course she also thinks that she should be getting more, but it boils down to, they think Evelyn is dead, but then they are seeing the red queen and they're like, what's happening? Well, Evelyn was not actually the daughter. It was Rosemary. She has like a similar complexion and her hair color is the same as Kitty and Francisca's too. So, it kind of makes sense. 
at least in terms of like the obvious. But Evelyn was an orphan that they swapped out because the grandpa was like, oh, we're going to break this curse, Mm -hmm. even though he told them that it's not real. But I guess it's not real because he swapped out one of his kids. Yeah. (laughs) Which seems weird that he would swap a daughter. Also, where are their parents? (laughs) I did wonder that. I'm like, where? I thought towards the end of the movie, because I don't like a movie that brings in another character from left field and has them be like the big bad or whatever. Mm -hmm. In this case, they didn't really do that. They brought in an existing character, but then, you know, revealed her actual parentage. But I did wonder that. I'm like, oh, are they going to bring in like their mom or dad and be like, no, we are the ones because we're going to kill all of you and steal your money. Yeah. I was wondering that. Yeah. Okay. So here's a question because I'm a little unclear about this. So when Martin and the doctor at the psychiatric hospital Mm -hmm. are, they're talking, I believe it's after Elizabeth dies. Mm -hmm. They're talking about how like, oh, some of these rich families do a good job of hiding the fact that they have, you know, a relative in treatment at this facility And the doctor is just, like, straight up violating HIPAA and starts (laughs) rattling off some family names. And Martin says, oh, wait, like, Kitty's family? And Martin says, you know, well, who? Was it Kitty? Was it Francisca? And the doctor's like, oh, I can't can't say anymore now. He's like, whoops, I'm going to get sued. Okay, so here's what I want to know. So we see Eveline as a small kid exhibiting some pretty violent behavior. However, we don't see Francisca as a kid. Was she the one in the psychiatric hospital? Was it little Eveline? Like, they never clarify that. I can only imagine that it's Francisca. And I thought that because she doesn't appear in any of the flashbacks except for the one where Eveline dies. I was totally confused by that because based off of only that little precursor, like, uh, shot that you get, the little flashback, it seems like there's just the two of them. Right. Exactly. And that, like, also in the f- in the picture, in the painting, there's only the two of them. So having a third sister really threw me off initially. I was like, who is this? Yeah. It really threw me off. But she's, like, the eldest of them. I mean, I guess it makes sense, but just even throwing them in a little bit, throwing her in in the pre, like the little flashback thing, would have really helped me understand that and would have kind of tied it all together better a little bit. But yeah, who was the one inside the psychiatric hospital? It very well could have been Francisca because she is significantly older than Kitty. Because okay. Kitty, I think, is about probably 23 or 24. Right. And they say Francisca's age at the very, very end when they're putting Kitty and Martin in the ambulance and they're talking about Herbert died. Oh, yeah. And they mention that she's 35. Okay. So she would definitely be older and mm-hmm. either out of the house in some capacity. Maybe she was already married to Herbert. Maybe she was in this um, psychiatric facility. Mm-hmm. Maybe she was away at boarding school or, you know, some nonsense like that. But right. it was very weird. Yeah, it did throw me off at first. I was like, wait, now who is she? Yeah. Who is this person? Yeah, like, who is she? I, honestly, at first, I thought she was like the grandpa's much younger wife. 
Until oh, Herbert came wife. in. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking, okay, well, or, or like a caretaker. Yeah. Like a living caretaker, which yeah. would make total sense because he was very old and very rich. He wasn't even really that old. He was just very frail. And you see that in the flashback, too, that he's like in a wheelchair even then. It's just strange how they polished it all off with like this weird I mean, even when they're explaining it, there were a couple of times I was like, wait, hang on a second, what? Where I wasn't exactly getting all of the pieces right there at the end when they were tying it up, because it is so very complex. Yeah. It's just, there's a lot going on. Yeah. So I was like, wait, what? It was a sister? And then, wait, Evelyn is not the sister? (laughs) And Rosemary is? So... I thought that one of them was pretending, like, I thought Francisca was not a sister, but she is the sister. Yeah. And Rosemary was really oh, the sister. Oh, you thought she was just pretending to be. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I thought I she mean, was, like, sense. stealing that spot because she thought she would get more of an inheritance or whatever. But, so, Eveline was not a real sister. She was an orphan. Rosemary was swapped out, and she became somebody else's kid. She was swapped out. I think the grandpa placed her with somebody who, like, couldn't have kids or something. Yeah. And then, so the three sisters, including Eveline, Kitty, and Francisca, the three of them were the ones that were supposed to have the inheritance, the three sisters. And then he did that to break the curse. Yes. But the curse was only ever with two sisters. Right. So it's interesting that he swapped out a sister because there were three yeah. <laughs> it's like, how does that make sense? Because the curse was only ever two sisters, the Red Queen and the Black Queen. It's like, okay, where, where's the third queen? The extra queen. <laughs> the, the spare queen. The spare queen. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, so he swapped out Rosemary for Eveline. But then Francisca finds out about Eveline not being a real sister. So Kitty thinks she kills Eveline. She doesn't actually kill Eveline. So then Francisca does kill Eveline so that Kitty, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay, weird theory. Okay. What if, I'm making the grandpa really twisted here. Ooh. What if Francisca was placed in a psychiatric hospital kind of in the same way that we were talking earlier, where it was a man basically deciding that a woman is crazy, but it was really, okay, I'm going to place Francisca in a psychiatric hospital to break the curse. So she can't get to Kitty. Kitty's my favorite. So she stays here. And then, oh, there's a third baby. All right, we got to swap this one out. Oh, weird. Yeah, that's messed up. It's messed up, but, like, that could be what was happening. Again, where are the parents in all of this? I do not know. Clearly not a movie where you're supposed to, like, think super hard about the familial aspect of this. Yeah. Just, like, you're just supposed to let it wash over you. Yeah, where are these, <laughs> where are these children's parents? <laughs> where are the parents? Yeah. Um, but then... We find out that Francisca is kind of the mastermind. She gets, she tells Rosemary that she's actually a a Wildenbrook child, a daughter, and she gets her hooked on drugs via Peter. Right. And then 
kind of feeds her all this nastiness so that Rosemary is motivated then to kill several of her co-workers, which is why you have so many co-workers get murdered. Because at first I'm like, why are all these random co-workers getting murdered? She didn't hate any of these people. The family is not attached to any of the co-workers that were getting murdered. Like Hans is so far removed from Kitty and her family. I'm like, that makes no sense. Yeah. But now... You see why Rosemary is the one that's kind of exacting revenge on people who are treating her poorly. And then, obviously, it gets to a point where Rosemary is no longer needed. So, Francisca, who has already killed Eveline, who I would imagine is the first of the seven, and Rosemary is the last of the seven. That's what I'm thinking, yeah. Okay. Because uh, the grandpa doesn't say when he's telling this story about the seven. He doesn't say how long it takes the right, Red no, Queen yeah. to come back and kill all yeah. these people. And Eveline's death is not that long ago. Right. Like, it, t- it takes a minute to figure that out in the flashback because they're certainly older. Mm-hmm. Um, but at first I thought, oh, this happened maybe five, six years ago. But actually, it was very, very recently. Yeah. Because you have a lot of people throughout the film asking about Eveline, like, oh, she just up and went to America. So you get the impression that it actually happened pretty recently. Yeah. When they're polishing it all up there at the end, and I think Herbert did die because they said, like, male 35 died because of the water or something. Um, Herbert's last stand. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There are many times, though, when you think that he's in on it, and yeah. I'm not sure if he really is in on it. I don't it. think he was. No. Because there towards the end, it seems like he's very earnestly trying to figure out what's happening, and, like, he doesn't want Kitty to die. Yeah. There's just some shifty-eyed looks there for a little bit at the dinner thing where you're like, what is happening? But... Uh, then you find out that Francisca doesn't want to be married. To, he She wants Herbert to die. She doesn't want to be married to him anymore because he has a disability. He has a, a limp, which, like, his leg is messed up. That's it. Yeah. Like, it... yeah. She, she's, yeah. She's really. Uh... She's a number. She's a trip. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, she, she wants the inheritance all for herself. She does not want to have to share it with anybody, unfortunately. So... Um, I did think it was funny, though, that even in the time, even in the instances where they were killing somebody who had nothing to do with this family or this legend of the Red Queen, she stuck to the costume. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's like, I've got this whole costume made up. I gotta have it. Like, I'm, look, I'm wear I can it. run around in this cape and make it flap around, which, like, truth be told, <laughs> if I had a red cape, yeah, I would make it flap in the wind, too. I did wonder about, we see when, uh, this is also kind of funny, um, Eveline's apartment is still there, and it still has her name on it. It yeah. still says Eveline Wildenbrook, and I was like, nobody thought to just knock on her door, or like go check if they thought she was missing, like not go visit, I don't know. Um, but there were multiple cloaks in the room, there were at least yeah. three that we could see. One on the chair, one hanging on the hook, and one on the bed. And so I was like, why are there so many red cloaks? Did, is she, like, real finicky about whether or not they're clean? Maybe. Or were there other people wearing them? That's an interesting question. Yeah. Because why would you, if you have a wig, because we see that there's also mm-hmm. two wigs mm-hmm. in there, at least two, why would you want to wear a mask? 
if you could just wear a wig because they all kind of look similar, but the three sisters look fairly similar. And if you were wearing a wig and running, because nobody can clearly see this Red Queen's face, why would you need two wigs? Why would you need three cloaks? Interesting. Yeah. That's another one of those. I want to watch it again to see if I can figure out, like, was it was it Rosemary the entire time in the cloak or was it Francisca sometimes? Which would make it easier because, as we all know, in slashers where there's two people, mm-hmm. then you have the red herring exactly. of the other killer. So, yeah. like Scream. Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. Like Scream movie. I feel like we we did it. We did it. Yeah. Next time, we're going to have our first ever guest. I'm so excited. Yay! So that'll be for next time. And then we are rapidly moving toward Pride Month, by the way. So just, you know, know that that is coming as well. And we'll have some good stuff for you for Pride Month. Yay! And uh, some exciting stuff this summer. Of course, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice so you don't miss anything. We are... Getting ready to hit the halfway point for Midnight Mass. So uh, join us for that. We're recapping Midnight Mass episode by episode as bonus content. And we'll have some more good stuff for you this summer. So uh, find us, rate, review, do all the things. Yes. Follow us on social media. We're posting all the time. Try to anyways. Yeah. It's fun. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com, Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and on Twitter at Final Girls Pod. Our theme music is by House Ghost and available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And tell your friends about us. I'm Julia. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Bye.